Let's pray. Father, we turn to you this morning to receive your word. Father, we acknowledge that your word feeds our soul, that we need your word this morning. Father, your word gives us strength and encouragement. So, Father, I ask that you strengthen us, that you enlighten us this morning. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Father, may we know the deep root of our hope in Jesus Christ. Father, as you do it for us, do it for the Yemen people, over 11 million people this morning. Break their bondage to Islam. Father, that false religion that has them trapped. Father, I pray that you will release them, that you will liberate them. Father, I pray that the burden of measuring up and coming to a standard, Father, that you will open their eyes, help them to see that they can't measure up. No matter how much they do, they need Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'll bring missionaries to the Yemen people, more people, more brothers and sisters, who will share the good news of Jesus Christ, that he measures up for us. Father, I pray for Colin Rieger and Grace Church Buchanan. Father, I pray for Colin's family, Jessica and the kids. Father, I pray that you will strengthen them, especially during this season and all the busyness. Father, may they have time together to come and worship and embrace their Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may they enjoy the season of Advent and celebration at Christmas. Father, I pray that you'll bless Grace Church Buchanan, that you'll strengthen them, that you'll grow their number, that you will enable them to share the good news all around Buchanan, Central West Virginia. Father, we pray for the International Mission Board of the SBC. Father, you have blessed that ministry over the years. And Father, we pray that you'll continue to do so, that you'll strengthen the missionaries who have left their home, left their families, all for the sake of the gospel. Father, your name is worthy to forsake all else. And Father, I pray that the missionaries who have gone overseas, that they will remember, that they will remember not only the good news and the preaching of your word, but they'll remember the reward that awaits them, Father. The reward of your presence, the reward of you saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, that's my prayer for here in King George County, the faithful preachers of your word, that they will preach your word and will not fall on deaf ears, that we will be faithful to your word, that we will preach the whole counsel of God, that many will be saved through the preaching of your word, through the sharing of the gospel. Father, I pray especially for the Dahlgren area here Father, I pray that you will reveal yourself both to us and through us, that you'll save more people here in Dahlgren. Father, grant us the sweet joy of sharing the gospel and witnessing resurrection of life. Father, help us to be bold in our proclamation and to have greater faith in your Son. Father, save unbelievers to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.
This morning we began a four-week Advent series leading up to Christmas. Let me explain why we're taking a break from 1 Corinthians to have a season of Advent. At the beginning of the service, I briefly explained the lighting of the Advent candles and Scripture readings, but there's more that needs to be said. Advent helps us to remember that Christmas is not about us. It's all about Christ. If there's anything about us, it's our sin and our rebellion against God. And God's love freely given to us. Christmas first declares us guilty, incapable of saving ourselves, and in desperate need of mercy. And then the mercy of God is gloriously displayed in the Christ child. Christmas is ultimately about a compassionate, loving God promising to rescue a people who are in rebellion against Him and sending His own Son to save them. If done rightly, Advent strengthens our confidence in the promises of God and opens our eyes to the significant weight that's been lifted because of the first Christmas and the exceeding delight experienced because the burden of the law has been lifted off of our backs by the Savior. Advent has been practiced in the church for a long time. But in recent times, not so much. Since as early as the 4th century, the church has done it in various ways. Most common today is the lighting of candles on the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. The word Advent comes from Latin meaning coming. It's a season of waiting for Christ to come to earth. He did it in the first time as a lowly baby born in Bethlehem. His first advent depicted in the nativity scene. And now we wait for him. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we wait for him to come back. His second advent. During Advent, we take time to remember, to pause and remember the promise of the long-awaited Messiah that was to come and save His people. We remember the pain and the turmoil people in the Old Testament went through in waiting for their Savior to come and rescue them. But we not only remember the great coming of Jesus that fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies, we are also waiting. For those of us who've been saved, we are waiting for Christ to come again. His promise to return and to take us home to be with Him forever. Advent is a time to look back and celebrate Christ's birth, but it's also a time to look forward to the long-promised return of Jesus Christ. God promises that one day there will be no more seasons of Advent No more seasons of waiting for Him to come. Because one day He's coming again and the waiting will be over. God's people will have the fullness of joy like we read earlier. The fullness of joy and pleasures forever in His presence. I've entitled the four-part series of Advent, The Promise. 
In your chairs this morning, there was a card that lists the sermon title for each week. During this season, we're going to look at different aspects of the promise of redemption that's fulfilled in Christ. The promise of God's amazing grace to sinful people like you and me, given through His Son, Jesus Christ. We have the promised Messiah, the promised gospel, the promised King, and Lord willing, the Sunday before Christmas, we have the promised gift. This whole series is based on what we read in Romans chapter 1. If you will, please turn with me to Romans 1, verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, please raise your hand and we will get you a copy of the Bible. If you don't own one, please keep this as a gift to you. It's on page 939 of the church Bible. In this passage, we see that God says in His Word that He fulfills His promise to save His people through His Son, Jesus Christ. Please stand with me as I read God's Word. Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. There's a lot in this little passage. And it's all about God fulfilling His promise to save His people. And He tells us how He does it through His Son. This passage says... The promise is fulfilled. The promise to save His people is fulfilled in Christ. It's the promise of Christmas given in Jesus Christ. Christmas is a celebration of God faithfully accomplishing His promise to save His people who are drowning in their own sin. Every person, every single one of us here swimming in a sea of corruption and debauchery. We are morally corrupt and sinful and we are completely incapable of making it to shore on our own. There's nowhere where we can stand to get a grip to hold on to. We are simply and fully sinking. We're drowning. And with Christmas... With Jesus being born in Bethlehem, with Jesus humbling himself, coming down and being part of his creation, Jesus sacrificing himself in place of sinners, he defeats sin, he destroys death, and he overthrows the devil. He rescues those who confess their sin, who admit that they are swimming in their own depravity and they trust Him alone to save them. 
And he brings them safely to shore. And he keeps them there. And he keeps them from being lost at sea. And they flourish forever. Romans 1, the first six verses, tell us that this promise is for those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And it's through Jesus that we receive God's grace. It's through Jesus we receive the forgiveness of sins in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name. This promise to save given throughout the Old Testament Scripture says He is the one who's descended from David in human form. He's the one who's declared to be the Son of God where God's power and His Spirit is demonstrated in His resurrection from the dead. He, Jesus, is the good news of God. He's the gospel, the good news promised beforehand. He is God's gospel. He is God's message of salvation. And He is God. Scripture says He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus being the reality of God's loving mercy is what we celebrate at Christmas. The promise that God's people waited for centuries to come true. The promise that is fulfilled once for all time. The promise that we wait to be taken home with Him. During this four-part Advent series, I hope I want to take us as best we can into the depths of this promise. The need for this promise to see the glory of God in a baby lying in a manger. Who will one day grow up and stand in the place of sinners, take the punishment of death, and demonstrate divine power So that those who confess their sinfulness and trust in Him are free. They are free from their sin and brought into His family. And they are loved exceedingly beyond comparison. They are loved beyond our understanding. I hope that this Advent series, that through this series you will understand the promise of Christmas, that it began long before Jesus' birth. It was a promise before creation to have a relationship with you. There's a reason why in the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, in chapter 1, the first 17 verses list the genealogy of Jesus. And then in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. Each generation trusting in the promise from God to redeem his people. And the promise began before Abraham. Titus tells us the promise was given before the ages began. Paul tells us in Ephesians that the promise was given before the foundation of the world. This plan of salvation was put in motion long before time began. The meaning of Christmas reaches way back into eternity past 
when God determined in his sovereign love and his wisdom to display his grace in such a spectacular, holy, loving, miraculous way. We first read about the promised grace in Genesis after the creation of the world. God has created man and woman in his likeness to bear his image, to reflect his glory. The only part in God's creation that's made in his image. Human beings being the climax of God's creation. Because the Bible says God breathed life into them. Human beings were given not only a physical reality like the rest of creation, but were also given mental and spiritual reality, all of which bear the mark of God. They were given dominion over His creation and told to care for it. They were placed in the Garden of Eden, a beautiful paradise, Genesis says, beautiful paradise. And it's because God's presence was there. Scripture says the man and woman could hear God's footsteps in the garden and they enjoyed fellowship with God. When God created human beings, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Understanding this from the New Testament, we know that he is speaking about the Holy Trinity here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three in one. The Trinitarian Godhead, who are three distinct yet inseparable persons of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit made mankind in their image. God created man in his image. The power and majesty and glory of God is seen in the very beginning at the creation of the world. It was God's decision to create. It was his world that he created through his word and put order into it. And his spirit was there in the creation. By telling us in Genesis that God created the world and put it in order by putting limits on the seas, by springing up the trees and the vegetation, by breathing into man, God reveals his absolute sovereignty that he alone rules his creation. God has no equals. There are none who are like him. There is God And then there's everything else. God and you. God and anything else you can imagine. God is in a class all by himself. God rules over people and all things. And in chapter 3 of Genesis, we are told of the most heinous, the most offensive crime ever committed. The man and woman who God created in his image to reflect his glory, told to live and work in his creation, turned away and rejected God. 
They renounced his lordship over their lives. They ate fruit that God said not to eat. They, in essence, said, you don't matter, God. Your word to us doesn't matter. It does not direct us. You no longer have authority over us, your creation. We decide what to do. We will determine what is right. We will get what we want. You are not worthy of obedience or our worship. No offense that happens against you compares to this. No crime that we can imagine measures to the extent of the wickedness of this. This is the definition of sin. The active revolt in our heart that expresses our love for us and our disdain for the one who we were created to exalt. The one who deserves honor and praise rejected for immediate gratification. God in all his power and majesty and sovereign rule who formed man out of dust could have completely annihilated his creation because of this. And he could have started over. But he didn't. Every person here is a descendant of Adam and Eve. And we have inherited their fallen condition. We are born into sin and we all on our own choose to ignore the rightful place of God. We choose to love lesser things and not God. Just think how easy it is for you to think about yourself and for yourself and how hard it is for you to think about God. God has every right to judge his creation. But look with me please at Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. Page 3 in the church Bible. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God after the fall, in Genesis 3, it doesn't lead to immediate annihilation. It leads to the promise of redemption. And this is good news. Verse 8. And they, being Adam and Eve, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Because of the fall, all of us are in desperate need of mercy. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises to save sinners and to crush evil. God says a day is coming when evil is defeated, when sinners are transformed into saints. My reflection will be gloriously restored to them. My grace will manifest in them. I will have an eternal relationship with them. Death will be no more. There will be the death of death. God will revive the hearts of his people, bring them out of despair, and they will rest in the newness of life in his presence. This is the promised gospel. God did not destroy Adam and Eve, which he would have been just to do so. But instead, he revealed his covenant of grace to them by promising a savior. And he convicted Satan with a death sentence. When Adam and Eve sinned, God pursued them. They hid and God went to them. He sought them and he promised to restore them and to bring peace to them. Genesis 3.15 is known in church history as Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium. It's the first announcement of the gospel. We are told here of the crushing defeat of the serpent. And then throughout the Old Testament, there's a progressive revelation of the gospel. From Noah, to Moses, to Abraham, to David, to the coming of Christ. More of the gospel is revealed the further you read in the Old Testament. Here in Genesis, we hear that this is good news. This message of glorious victory. We hear it's costly. God declares enmity between the woman and the serpent. It's hatred and opposition on a cosmic level. And God will have to go to great lengths to restore his creation. Enmity has an intense level of hostility. One writer describes it on a level of animosity that results in murder. It's a life and death struggle. It's severe. It's a plan set in motion that will take time to come to fruition. It's not immediate. The seed of the woman means there will be a future lineage. An individual offspring of the woman will do battle and win. All the descendants before and after won't do the battle, but there will be one offspring that will war with the serpent and give the lethal blow. The seed of the woman will ultimately be victorious. He will crush the head of the serpent, but he won't be unscathed. 
He will have a bruised heel. The woman of the um, the wounds of the serpent and the offspring are not the same either. At the battle between them, we see it's not equal. There are not two sides of the same strength that are going at it. One stomps on the other while the other one only strikes at the heel. The location of the wounds is also important. Crushing the head of the snake depicts a finality to it. It's a death blow. The seed of the woman will deliver a strike against the serpent that kills it. It will become limp, incapable of striking or biting. It will no longer frighten or attack. It will be a defeated enemy. But before it meets its end, it will bruise the heel of the seed. The descendant of the woman, not a permanent blow, nor a fatal blow, but it will be one that will injure the offspring. The offspring of the woman will be a man who defeats the serpent and restores God's people. He will be injured, but the injury won't take him out. We see this is a picture of the cross. It's an image of atonement. Jesus taking the punishment of sins through his own suffering and death, appeasing the offense that first occurred in the garden. But the cross was not the final scene. Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans. Jesus is the vindicator of the woman. He defeats sin and death. Now in Genesis 3, we're not told who this is. We only read the promise of God to do it. Throughout the Old Testament, there's a thread of an image of a redeemer who would be a descendant, the seed of the woman. There's a progressive revealing of who this will be, a gradual unfolding of God's plan. For this promise... In Genesis 3, to come true, the offspring will need to be powerful enough to defeat the serpent and not give in to his temptations like Adam and Eve did. He will have to be morally blameless to fulfill the requirements of obedience. He will need to be willing to be bruised and battered and not regret it or resent it. He will need to be perfect to atone for sin and rise victorious. There's no one in all of God's creation who meets this criteria. It will take God himself to accomplish this. God will have to come down and be part of his creation to fulfill his promise. God's own son, the second person in the Godhead, the one who had such power to speak creation into existence, the one who is the fullness of God and man, came on that first Christmas so that he could take the penalty for sin upon himself. He was bruised and he carried out his mission in joy, the Hebrew writer tells us. And he's triumphant. Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Paul tells us this promise that God gives in Genesis is fulfilled in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. When Adam fell, God spoke to him, and a curse was given to Adam and to Eve, to all of us, and to the devil. But in his mercy, God also gave a promise, a promise to end the curse and return his creation to its holy state. Paradise was destroyed. But God promised to provide a remedy to the destruction caused by sin. The promise of victory through the seed of the woman is good news. God is victorious. Satan's temptations, his evil schemes, the enmity between us and him is defeated by Christ at the cross. Christ has fought and won a victory we cannot do. From the promise in Genesis verse 15, there are four truths to remember during this Advent season. Number one, this promised good news is an announcement of hope to those who see the reality of their sin and confess to God that they need Jesus to rescue and restore them. The enmity ends in Christ. Only one seed fulfills this. Back in Galatians 3, verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. From the garden to Abraham to Christ, Only one offspring, one seed who fulfills God's promise. This Christmas, don't go through the motions of the season without remembering the need for the good news, remembering the gospel of Jesus. The reason the Son of God appeared was to fulfill the promise of crushing God's enemies and saving sinners. This is the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. Remember this hope and take immense delight if Jesus is your Savior. Number two, you and I live in a state where the gospel is given through Jesus, yet sin still wars within me and within you. It still wars within us. We still battle it. Jesus stomped on the head of the serpent, but the snake's death is slow. 
And he's doing all he can to strike out until his end. Christmas is a reminder that you cannot war against Satan and live. God knows this. And in his loving mercy, he sent his son to do battle for you. If you trust in Jesus, your sin that you battle with is already defeated in Christ Jesus. If you are here this morning and your sin has you feeling weak or depleted, think of the promise of the gospel in Christ Jesus and know that Satan's end is near. Your sin will be no more. Your eternal life is assured in Christ. See Christmas as the break of dawn in the darkness. The saying that goes, it's always the darkest before the dawn. Well, Christmas declares that night is over. It's a new day in Christ. It's a new day of peace with God. A day where His love for you will never go away. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Having joy this Christmas. Have joy. Take joy this Christmas because your sin is atoned for in Christ and God's grace is with you. Next, if you have children, help them to see the immensity of Christmas. The cosmic battle that's won through Christ coming. Spend time with them in God's word. Go beyond the Bethlehem scene and explain why Christ had to come. Why was he born? He was born so that man may no more die. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is the good news of Christmas. The joy of Christmas is that God made salvation possible through His Son. And lastly, share this good news. This Christmas, give the good news of Jesus to your family, to your friends, to your neighbors, to all who you come in contact with. Christmas is an excellent opportunity to explain the birth of our Savior. People need to hear that peace with God is given through His Son. They need to understand that Christmas is more than just time with family. It's more than a season of giving gifts. It's more than a baby being born. It's about that baby being born so that he would grow up and die for sinners. That he would give his life as a ransom for many. Share this good news with them. Help them to see the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. This is good news. Let's pray.